0: Brought to you by the 2012 Toyota Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
2: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: And this episode is the shaman and the scientist hallucination. It is uh, more or less a part two following up on our episode Uh, The Shaman and the Scientist, My Egoic Mind. Both of these deal with psychedelics. So just on the last podcast, just want to let everyone know off the top of the podcast, if you didn't get it from the title or the description, yes, we're going to be talking about uh, psychedelic substances in this episode. But we're going to be talking about them uh, largely from a scientific standpoint and from the standpoint of some very exciting and very important research that uh, continues to go on right now into how these substances affect the human mind and what those effects can actually reveal about uh, the inner workings of the human mind and potentially aid us in uh, dealing with some very real mental problems, uh, mental ailments, uh, etc.
2: And again, this was born out of the exhibit for I Am the Black Jaguar, which is at Emory University. And uh, there was a talk there that you attended Mm -hmm. with uh, Dr. Catherine McLean and Dr. Charles Raison about this very topic.
1: Yes, fascinating topic. Dr. Catherine McLean involved in a lot of this exciting research at Johns Hopkins, uh, where they're they're taking individuals, they're exposing them to these various uh, psychedelic substances, and then uh, interacting with them, getting their perspectives on on what they're feeling and what's happening. Uh, looking at their brain, uh, using radioactive tracers to observe exactly how this is affecting their mind. Lots of fascinating research. And as we discussed in the last podcast, we're in a, an, an interesting stage in the sort of ebb and flow of psychedelic research. Psychedelic research it makes it sound kind of silly, but research into uh, psychedelics and how they affect the mind. Mm-hmm. Because this, all of this sort of kicked off in the 50s, mid 50s, but by the end of the 60s took a dive to basically nothing because of the politics and the cultural backlash. backlash yeah. yeah. And it didn't really get pick didn't pick up again until the the '90s, and finally achieving some level of uh, of, of steam again in the, at the dawn of the 21st century.
2: But of course, a lot of these substances have been in use for thousands of years through shamanic practices in various parts of the world. What we're talking about here are ethnogenic substances, right? Uh, psychoactive substances used in religious. Uh, or spiritual context.
1: Yeah. To put it in a Simpsons standpoint, Homer Simpson takes peyote, and then he talks to a space uh, coyote mm-hmm. uh, that talks to him and helps him deal with his problems. That's kind of, I mean, that's the, the pop culture Simpsons simplified version of shamanic uh, experience, where some wise person, a holy man or woman in a traditional setting that also you know pro- probably engages in various cultural, traditional medicines, they give you a magical substance, one of these, uh, you know, the mushroom or the vine of ayahuasca, and then you take it. The shaman probably takes it too, probably in higher doses, and then guides you on the experience.
2: Yeah, and actually, I had read that shamans were sometimes picked uh, for their ability to bring on these states of, these altered states of consciousness. Um, Uh, by doing it actually just on their very own Mm. and not necessarily using any sort of substances. So uh, they were definitely looking for people who had this ability to expand their minds and to access a part of their minds that, that, uh, that we don't normally use during the day, right? Or throughout the day, I should say. So here's this idea that comes online that perhaps hallucinating is natural to humans, Mm -hmm. right? Because you've had it in these rituals for thousands of years. You've had it in practice in this attempt to try to get a better understanding of our place in the world. But also you have something called DMT, which is naturally occurring in nature.
1: Dimethyltryptamine. Yeah. And this this was first synthesized by British chemists in the 1930s. Uh, it has uh, psychotropic properties that were discovered 20 years later by Hungarian-born chemist Stephen Sara. But then in 1972, Nobel laureate Julius Axelrod, he discovered DMT in human brain tissue, okay, leading us back to the idea. This isn't something you just synthesize. This is something that is is in the mind that exists already, Uh so this led to speculation that the compound plays a role in psychosis. Uh, people researched that possibility and eventually abandoned it, again, because of all the, the backlash against research mm-hmm. into psychedelics anyway. But this was the beginning of our understanding of, of what DMT is and, and what role it plays in these experiences, these shamanistic experiences, because it's always been a part of our brain, mm-hmm. and it's present in plants such as the, the ayahuasca.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so we're, when we talk about it being present in the brain, we're talking about trace amounts yes. of these DMT molecules. So obviously it's not any sort of amount that's going to, uh, say, allow us to accidentally start tripping because somehow there was some sort of trigger uh, that occurred. But it does uh, lead people to question why DMT is in the mm-hmm. brain, what sort of role it's playing, and it should be noted that dmt is closely related to serotonin which is the naturally occurring neurotransmitter that psychedelics affect so widely and the pharmacology of dmt is similar to that of other well-known psychedelics so there's definitely a relationship going on there it's just a question of again what sort of role might dmt play in the mind Um, there have been some people who say that it's Produced by the pineal gland, but we don't know that for sure.
1: Yes, don't go stealing pineal glands (laughs) thinking (laughs) you're going to
2: trigger anything. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. It leads us to this question about whether or not hallucinations are something that are produced normally in nature and uh, whether or not hallucination is something that humans are supposed to do. Um, I bring this up because there's a 2011 study at Hull University in the UK. Um, which has to do with hallucinating colors. Yes. Now, uh, scientists asked a group of pre-screened people to look at a set of gray patterns and try to visualize color. Eleven members of the group had been identified as highly susceptible to hypnosis. Uh, and then seven of these subjects were not susceptible at all. The study found that all subjects who were easily hypnotized reported seeing a range of colors, even while not under hypnosis. In other words, their brain was hallucinating colors. Um, And then MRI scans corroborated this and showed that the parts of the brain linked color perception lit up when they saw, in quotations, imaginary hues of colors. So you have this idea coming online that... You know, there are parts of the brain that can work in conjunction to create the reality. And we talked about this a thousand times, that what we construct as reality is, uh, or I should say rather our perception really is an approximation of reality, and that each of us is looking at the world in a completely different way. We're just sort of all agreeing on a couple of things to make sure we have some continuity in life.
1: Now, it's interesting you mentioned that. uh because on the, the subject of DMT, the subject of any of these substances, one of the things that Dr. Catherine McLean brought up, specifically stressing the the research environment that they use uh, at John Hopkins, where they have, they don't just... Inject people with uh, these psychedelic substances and then put them into like a padded room or something. Yeah, say see uh, you tomorrow. Right, they have a they have a really calming um, space that has some you know abstract art, has some Buddhas, has some other uh, religious or spiritual iconography, some you know comfy couches, and they do a certain amount of priming to because they don't want to throw somebody into some sort of nightmare trip. You know, they they want to send them on a more or less positive trip. They can't guarantee it, but they did find that on, uh, I believe, psilocybin, that uh, outside of a clinical environment, about 30% of the people would say that they had a mystical experience inside of the experiment when, when they were controlling the mm-hmm. in, the environment in which they were taking, you know, and surrounding them with this kind of mystical and calming stuff, they would see a 70% of the uh, test subjects reported having a mystical experience. So, so
2: what you're saying is, that, again, a lot of it is suggestion, right? right? And, and, and
1: Yeah, and going into it with, with certain expectations as well. You kind of see that with DMT as well, because I was looking at some of these accounts of, of what DMT is like. And um, in a letter to Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs <laughs> described his, his own, and, and it's of course important to know that William Burroughs did a lot of things. He did
2: <laughs> a lot, a lot of drugs. Yeah,
1: he did a lot of drugs. So he's, he's maybe not the you know a pure test subject, but he reported like the the first time he took it, it was he he felt himself turning into a half man, half woman, and that he was space time traveling. Whereas your buddy, uh, John Horgan, author of Rational Mysticism, he had a totally, well, not a totally different experience, but he had a different take on the experience.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he took some ayahuasca because he is very interested, and at the time of writing his book, Rational Mysticism, was trying to get to the bottom of what is a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. You know, what's going on in the brain, what's going on with neuroscientists, what's going on with shamans. And uh, so he had the ayahuasca trip, and it was not... um, It was not probably pleasurable. It did not seem like it was for him. But was it mind-altering? Did it open up his perception? That it seems to have done.
1: Yeah, he said, quote, After I threw up, I had a cosmic (laughs) panic attack in which I was menaced by a malevolent, day-glow-hued polyhedra. I have no desire to repeat this experience. So
2: So there you go, kids, if you're thinking about doing the ayahuasca. Um, But it is really important, and this is what McLean says, uh, particularly in her talk at Emory when she was speaking about therapeutic effects of psilocybin, which is, um, if you you think about it as shrooms, you've probably heard it on the street, shrooms. Um, She was saying that it is very important to try to guide the person into having a sort of breakthrough with the experience and having as pleasurable an experience as they possibly can aka not having a bad trip.
1: Yeah, and, and that's a part of the whole shamanistic deal too is that the idea is that you had a guide, there's a certain desired experience that is then they attempt to create this experience via surroundings, via priming, via uh, a certain story or narrative or or mythos surrounding that experience versus somebody, you know, who just I don't know, is at a concert and somebody passes them something and they take it totally different experiences. One is steeped in expectations and priming, in the idea that you're going on a journey, you're attempting to to get somewhere, perhaps change something about you, figure something out. And the other is taking something and seeing what happens and watching fireworks. Right. As we've been discussing in this episode and the other shaman and the scientist episode, our consciousness is not this, really not this set thing. You know, um, like I say, you can look at a puppy or a cat, and it'll change the way you're thinking and the way you're looking at reality. You know, you can you, you have a cup of coffee, and your things are going to sharpen or fade uh, in terms of your perception.
2: The warmth from the cup of coffee yes. will inform your ideas about the person you're talking to, right?
1: Exactly. And according to Dr. Catherine McLean in this talk that I attended, and you attended in the form of an iPhone.
2: I was inside, really tiny inside Really the tiny, iPhone. yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, if you feel in your head around the sort of third eye area, Sort of between your between your eyes, back behind it, middle frontal part of the brain, mid frontal cortex, just buried back there in the in the, in the brain meat. Uh, there are two structures that play a key role in maintaining our sense of self in time and space. I mean, two vital th- like those are the big ones, right? In terms mm-hmm. of like how who I am and how I'm perceiving reality. How old am I? How old am I? Where where do I fit in with time? Where do I fit in with space? I mean, mm-hmm. that's like the basic stuff right there.
2: Well, remember, that was uh, some of the, the meat of being a person when we talked about personhood. Right. This ability to imagine yourself in the past, the present, and the future.
1: Yeah. So personhood itself, you, you can you can isolate to a certain part of the brain that is susceptible to changes. Mm-hmm. Something to keep in mind when we're talking about uh, not only how hallucinations and how psychedelics uh, skew the experience of self and in uh, and, and the outside world, but also just how susceptible to change our, our more or less default understanding of self in the outside world is.
2: Okay, so McLean also brings into question, I think I mentioned this before, that consciousness may not be as coherent as we think it is. So um, what she shared with everybody is that there's something that, that makes us even more tricky, and that's the introduction of a drug called Salvia Denorium. And um, in an experiment in 2012, they had uh, volunteers take this Mm -hmm. drug, this hallucinogen, and what they found is that all of these people, all of them, hallucinated that they had interactions with entities while on salvia.
1: Little men, elves, that kind of thing. We're talking. I mean, we're really getting into the whole territory of of, uh, of paranormal experience. Uh, yes, here, and, and spirits and, and and godlings and whatever you, else you might want to encounter in the woods.
2: Now that's not I mean, that's weird, right? Just because one hundred percent of the people had, you know, hallucinations specifically about entities. What's weird about this is that when they then had subsequent trips on Salvia, they revisited those scenarios and those entities. In other words, those entities became somewhat of a um a, a, Part of the continuum of consciousness. Yeah, they were able to return
1: to the same. I mean, I'm instantly reminded of dreams, of course, because we're talking Mm -hmm. about how crazy the the idea of encountering an entity is, and it's you know, and I imagine a number of people's minds are going a little wonky with just the idea of just who I'm. They someone took a substance, and then they encountered this being that wasn't real, but seemed to have, uh, you know, seemed to act of its own volition. Of course. We're constantly having dreams at night in which we interact with things Mm -hmm. that are essentially entities. We've all interacted with unreal people and unreal things in our dreams. But it is always or very often difficult to return to a dream. Whenever we have even just a motif returns in a subsequent dream, Mm -hmm. it's something that's noteworthy, much less the encounter with an exact same being or entity.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: So then, that sort of blurs the line again between what uh, what is illusion, what's reality, and what we construct as reality. Now, of course, I'm not saying that everybody should go out there and hallucinate and find an entity and right. and then have conversations with it. I'm just saying that I and, think it's interesting it's, that it's now coded as a memory and it's part of the continuum.
1: Right, and it's worth noting. Um, McLean's study was it was a small number of people mm-hmm. she said for this, that in which she had 100% see entities, and you do encounter plenty of cases where people have claimed to have taken. Uh, Salvia, and they do not experience entities. Yeah, true. So this is not a guaranteed ticket to fairyhood.
2: No, no. But, of course, her takeaway was, you know, hey, you you find some sort of being, and then you pick up the conversation a couple weeks later uh, with that person in your head.
1: This is a a vital part, of course, of shamanistic experience. One is taking a substance for a spiritual purpose.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, because the spiritual... Spiritual accounts, mystical accounts are full of people encountering unreal beings. So we can see exactly where that fits in in uh, shamanistic tradition.
2: Well, and like William William Burroughs, as you uh, spoke of, the half man, half woman. I mean, there's all sorts of encounters, of course. Um, But what I wanted to talk about next is this idea of uh, eyes wide shut, and particularly under the influence of ayahuasca. And I find this interesting because in the talk, they were talking about how ayahuasca and visual processing get really wonky because what you're talking about here are the areas of the brain associated with visual processing light. Um, and when you have your eyes open, right, you you can see the sort of activity in your brain mm-hmm. going on processing that. Uh, what they found, um, and this is, again, McLean talking about this in the talk, is that people who are on ayahuasca with their eyes shut, having hallucinations, were having the same level of activity in their brains um, in visually processing uh, as they would in their waking hours and processing the data, Yeah, which is very different from how we normally process data when our eyes are closed.
1: Yeah, worth noting, too, that not only was the activity in the brain identical to eyes open, they were, it was identical to eyes open uh, in an outside environment, in a, in a very... Stimulus filled environment.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: they close their eyes, and they're they're still encountering that much stimuli.
2: Yeah, which then it sort of plays this idea, um, you know, that your the dream of your consciousness is merging with what your brain is perceiving as reality.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, she uh, she laid out that a lot of this does come down to this breakdown between the sense of self and other, between mm-hmm. the self, sense of you and the outside world, and uh, um, and and that's part part of what's at play here.
2: Uh, now, she and um, and Razan talked about the dangers of ayahuasca. They did talk about um, how this is not taken lightly, particularly with this kind of uh, psychoactive substance, because uh, you apparently have to prepare your body very well for mm-hmm. this type of hallucinogen Um and a lot of this has to do with the amount of serotonin that you already have in your brain. So you don't want to mess with these levels. Right. Um, and I, I say that not because I don't, I think someone's going to do this, but um, this was something that they stressed in their talk is that this is not stuff to play with. This is stuff that they do in the lab. This is stuff that they make sure that people are mind and body prepared for, because even the amounts of cheese with triglycerides that you eat will affect the amount of serotonin in your brain. And if you were to then take ayahuasca and you had a lot of serotonin, you could be very dangerous can actually lead to death um so you have to make sure that all the levels are correct
1: yeah so no matter how much you w- might want to uh, in timothy leary's words go on a billion year journey to god if you have to give up cheese first i mean i don't know because cheese is great
2: <laughs> gonna booyah what, what was that part of, of the sentence
1: oh a billion year journey to god a billion year yeah. oh i thought you said a, a booyah. booyah a booyah your your <laughs> a booyah journey to god yes. yeah yeah uh, that works too i guess
2: and i think i'm hallucinating um, all right. So there's, again, this idea of hallucinations perhaps being a part of the machinery, and particularly when you look at something like meditating monks, Tibetan monks in particular. There have been accounts all over the place about monks uh, being able to meditate to such a degree that they begin to hallucinate themselves. Mm-hmm. So we talked about this before and, um, with... Hallucinations having something in common with meditating in terms of quieting the default mode network, this chattering part of your brain, makes you wonder if, again, through meditation, you can access this same sort of uh, hallucinatory experience, this realm of dreaming, of lucid dreaming, even.
1: Well, it instantly reminds me of mandalas, the idea that Tibetan monks especially will... Um, there's sort of there's the outer mandala you know that you see in art uh, depictions, but these are kind of blueprints for a, a really kind of a thought palace or kind of a memory palace, uh, this kind of mental space that they put their minds in, a place, Not, and I mean that in terms of there's actually like a floor plan, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and it's a, a way of containing some very complex spiritual ideas. And, and so creating this crazy structure in their head It seems similar in in many ways to the kind of crazy structure one might encounter, say on DMT or uh, Ayahuasca or one -hmm. of of these substances where one closes their eyes and experiences some sort of uh, amazing architecture or explosions or what have you. Uh, The difference being, of course, here that the, the monk is having to work really hard to achieve this level of calm and concentration and in uh, meditative state, whereas the uh, the individual taking the substance, not to say that it's easy, not to say that it's a necessarily a shortcut, but uh, there's less intense concentration involved in reaching that state.
2: Now, I don't know if this relates to it specifically in terms of hallucinations, but I do know that there's one practice in meditation where you um, you essentially try to imagine your own decomposition Hmm. and the idea is not just to you know get (laughs) try to figure out what your skull would look like but to try to figure out um, you know how ephemeral life is Mm -hmm. and how important the present is and um, apparently this is something that is very disturbing because it can take over the imagination parts of your brain, right? And as we had discussed in hallucinating color, um, sometimes what you're talking about here is just sort of making the inference that this will happen and your mind taking it and running with it.
1: Yeah, you see that that's actually a, a motif and a good deal of uh, Tibetan art and some of the mandala and mandala akin uh, creations where you see, like, flayed men and, mm-hmm. and bones and oceans of blood. And it's not like a morbid death metal celebration of that stuff, but it's about uh, the ephemeral nature of things and, uh, and about the, uh, the the limits of physical existence.
2: Right. And again, trying to get a, a better awareness of life and opening up your mind a bit. Right. Um, all right. So he- there's this idea that this, you know, speaking of ephemeral nature, may not be long lasting but there's some evidence that um, the drug use as well as the meditation could have long-term impact. Um, thinking uh, about Roland Griffins, I believe is his name, and he is the person we talked about his 2011 study of the stage four and cancer patients who were taking um hallucinogens in order to try to vanquish their their very very obvious very obviously real fears that were hamstring them in daily life their anxieties because of their illness and their disease um, I wanted to mention it because, uh, what they found is that some of these patients up to two years after their hallucinatory experience were still garnering the positive effects mm-hmm. of their experience. In other words, they had a sense of calmness. They they felt very expansive. They uh, no longer worried so much about their own fate or the fate of others. They just sort of were trying to be present in their daily life. And... They think the researchers think that the reason for this may be very similar to how other memories work. So you've talked about this before. You take out a memory mm-hmm. and you examine it. You might change it, tweak it a little bit. It gets stronger in your memory every time you take it out. Well, when the patients went through that experience and they sat down with the researchers and went over it again and again, they think that the same thing was happening. They were establishing long-term memories that were then um, sort of... Uh, Telling them how they were going to feel about this in the future.
1: Yeah, the, the that study in particular, I remember the uh, one of the keys. First of all, was preparation. They prepared these individuals mm-hmm. for their experience. You know, made sure that the environment, the uh, the preconceived notions, the expectations of the of the trip um, were firmly set in place. And then afterwards, it was then about taking apart what happened, what the experience, the, the altered modes of perception and experience that occurred, mm-hmm. and you know basically journaling about it, taking that memory out, looking at it, learning from it, putting it back, and then, like you say, continuing to take it out. Because every time you take it out, any memory, it's not this little... St- Structure sculpted out of rock. It's made out of clay, in multi, you know, still malleable clay. Mm-hmm. And every time you take it out and paw it around in your hands, be it uh, you know some traumatic memory of childhood or the greatest day of your life, you get it out. You're putting your fingers in it. You're messing it around. You're changing the shape of it, uh, however slightly.
2: Yeah, you're you're resurrecting the neural correlates, right, mm-hmm. and making them that much stronger.
0: Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: There's a podcast called Secular Buddhist that McLean was on, and she was talking, again, about the ability of uh, there to be long-term effects. And um, she was talking about a 2011 John Hopkins University study that gave a high dose of psilocybin to 51 adult participants. And 30 of them, she says, went a measurable personality change that lasted more than a year. Now, when she talks about personality change, they're talking about like five different aspects of personality. And one of them um, was a trait called openness. And she says that that is the only one that changed with these participants who had the measurable change over a year-long period. Now, she says that of the, the personality traits that um, that we know of and we Define personality by that 80% of that is genetic. Okay. And so you're sort of born with, you know, these types of personality traits that you're either stronger or weaker in. So you could be stronger or weaker in openness. And she said that it's very interesting that um, there's not a lot of tweaking you can do with personality, but with this one trait, openness, you could perhaps forge the way. Um, to continue to thrive in, a, in the space of openness with your personality and perhaps even vanquish depression as a result or continue to have an expansive worldview.
1: Well, th- this is weird. I'm kind of – maybe it's because we're recording this during the Christmas season. But hearing this, I cannot help but wonder, in uh, A Christmas Carol – does even Ebenezer Scrooge uh, do DMT or, te- or consume ayahuasca? Uh. <laughs> because here you have a, yeah. a, a, a curmudgeonly individual, very set in his ways, set in his personality, uh-huh. and then one night he trips his mind out completely and encounters three, no, well, not four ghosts, right? He encounters a, uh, four separate entities who take him on this fantastic voyage through time and space. And then when he wakes up, what's the big change in Scrooge? He's more open, right? He opens the window and he's calling out to children in the street that normally he would just want to beat with a stick, but now he's saying, "Oh, what what day is this, young chap?" And uh, and then it's uh, and then his life is changed. I mean, he's still Scrooge, like you say. A lot of his personality is still going to be set in stone, but there's that uh, portion of him that openness that has that has been altered by the experience.
2: You're right. He's probably still going to be somewhat thrifty. Right. Yeah. Uh, but maybe he's just going to be a little bit more open in his heart and more available to people. Yeah. Hopefully a year from that experience. So that's awesome. I've never really thought about uh, I know, I it. I never, I don't know. I
1: guess like I say it's the Christmas time around it, and, and then talking about all this psychedelic experience and how it can conceivably change somebody. It suddenly clicked.
2: Well, speaking of those four spirit guides, I wanted to close out with a quote from John Horgan who talks about how there's this resurgence in hallucinogenic drugs and scientific inquiry, and uh, rather scientific inquiry. He says, I applaud the psychedelic renaissance with this caveat. Uh, Spiritual texts often emphasize the dangers of mystical experiences, whether generated by drugs, fasting, meditation, or other means. That is the theme of an old Talmudic tale in which four rabbis are brought into the presence of God. One becomes a heretic. One goes crazy, one drops dead, and one returns home with his faith affirmed. So I think it's his point of saying all of this is very interesting, but we should not uh, approach this lightly uh, because what we're talking about here is the mind. And while it's very fertile ground, um, it is also very fragile.
1: Yeah, it's it's powerful stuff. The effects can be long-lasting and can can literally change who you are. So if you end up going down any of those routes, you know, again, we don't advise it. We don't condone the use of, of any of these uh, substances. But do put some thought into it and realize that you're, you're talking about some really powerful uh, agents that affect who you are at a very basic level. All right. And if you, you want to find out more about these topics, I'm sure you do, uh, we have a number of articles on HowStuffWorks.com about it. We have an article about LSD. We have an article about um, psychedelic mushrooms, a number of articles about how the mind works, Uh, In terms of things that we've referenced in this podcast and others, if you live in the Atlanta area, the Jaguar uh, exhibit will probably be gone by the time you hear this or or it certainly will be gone long-term. But check out what Emory's doing because they're always having fascinating exhibits. They always do a big Tibet exhibit every year. They're always bringing in really top-shelf presenters to share something uh, in the arts and the sciences, something culturally, something historic. Really cool place, a great university. In terms of stuff that you can obtain without traveling to Atlanta... The book by John Horgan,
2: Rational Mysticism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, very good. I think it was written in two thousand three, two thousand and four. But a lot of the research is still very much um, cutting edge, or what people are building on. Some of the stuff that he goes through—it's very yeah. interesting.
1: And then on on, uh, on Netflix, the uh, DMT documentary, DMT: The Spirit Molecule—that's available for streaming there, uh, as well as a number of TED Talks that uh, get into you know just how the brain works. And uh, and then if you want something just a little cheesier, there's some. There's some great, some great uh, horror movies about people taking these substances and turning into uh, mindless killers. There's a great movie called Blue Sunshine,
2: Blue seventy
1: eight. It's uh, kind of a cheesy, but but uh, very interesting horror flick about like uh, former flower children who in, uh, who ten years later all start losing their hair and turning into psychotic psychotic killers because they took some sort of tainted LSD back in the day. So uh, anyway, it's all up there if you want to <laughs> explore it. Um, as for getting in touch with us, uh, again, we would love to hear from anyone who has, uh, has thoughts on this particular topic. Uh, given the nature of this subject, we may not be able to share everything you share with us, with the rest of the, uh, the listeners, but we're still happy to hear from everybody. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. You can also find us on Twitter, where our handle is below the mind.
2: And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the 2012 Toyota Camry. It's ready. Are you?
2: Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool.